Welcome to this bonus podcast of Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My co-host over there is Greg Cott. And today, we are really excited to have back our contributor, Althea Legaspi. Althea, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Thank you. So uh, you talked to Alejandro Escovedo about the Sims Foundation. Uh, tell us about, uh, well, first of all, tell us what those initials are, S-I-M-S, and what they are doing. So it stands actually for a, a person who passed away, which Alejandro will tell us about in a little bit. It, by the way, he was just named 2021 Austin City Limits Hall of Fame inductee alongside Lucinda ah. Williams and Wilco. <laughs> well, I think everybody on Sound Opinion is a big Alejandro Escovedo fan. Yeah. Well, so he co-founded Sims Foundation in 1995. It's a nonprofit that subsidizes mental health and substance abuse recovery services for musicians. But what makes it, to me, pretty special is that it also subsidizes for the dependents of those musicians and also for the music community as a whole in Austin. So it's not just musicians, but people in the industry. It could be people working at a venue and so on and so forth. So this is it's a lot more expansive than some of the other not-for-profits out there. Because healthcare in the music world, whether you're a, a, a sound person or a musician or a spouse, I, I mean, it's just, you know, they, they don't have access to great healthcare, especially not when it comes to mental health or, or substance uh, abuse issues. Exactly. So they're expanding into other regions now in the wake of the pandemic, and uh, they launched this summer-long Founders Challenge initiative to help raise awareness for the foundation's work and they're expanding their services to more musicians nationwide. Alejandro and I talked about how the foundation came to be. Well, the Founders Challenge was inspired by Sims Ellison's father. And for those who don't know who Sims Ellison was, he was a beautiful young bass player in a band called Pariah in the 90s here in Austin. They were actually from San Antonio. They were a great band, and they had a great following. They had done this whole grassroots thing, you know. And eventually they got signed to Geffen Records, and their record was postponed for, I believe, about a year. You know, And by the time the record came out, that type of music had already been taken over by grunge, I believe. You know, So the record didn't do what they had hoped, and Sims fell into a state of depression and committed suicide. An article was written in the Austin American Statesman, I believe, by Michael Corcoran, which challenged the community to find some way to provide these mental services for musicians so that we wouldn't be constantly going to funerals, you know, or, or hearing about people that had dropped out because they couldn't deal with their mental issues. So in, that, in the wake of that, Don Harvey, Wayne Nagel, who owned the Austin uh, Rehearsal Complex, which was like our community center here in Austin, they began to start this thing, they called out to Don Ellison, who was Sim's father, myself, and Wayne Taylor, who was our legal aid then, uh, to start something, and we did. 25, 26 years later now, I think it is, and Don Ellison wanted to gather the founders to launch a campaign to raise resources for Sims and to raise the awareness of Sims. Unfortunately, he passed away on April 15th 2021 but it was don who provided the uh, initial resources to launch this campaign and to celebrate the 25th anniversary so you know now we're uh continuing with the founders challenge in honor of don ellison 
you know, the way the world has turned, it seems that there's a lot of people in need. Of course, over the, the last 18 months, you know, we've lost a lot of really beautiful people that we weren't able to mourn in the way that we're used to. You know, we weren't able to go and grieve with them. So we're hoping that the Founders Challenge is uh, really the aim is not only just to raise resources, but to raise the awareness of SIMS and what it provides in different, what it can provide in different communities. So yeah, the 18 months has just created so much more of a need. And some of the things they're doing is they have started outreach beyond this Founders Challenge, right? They had launched that in mid-July. But before then, they had started talking to their network. And their cities that they're currently working on are Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Nashville, and Detroit so far. Um, and in Austin, they've been helping around 1,000 people uh, a year. And yeah, they're hoping, obviously, to go beyond these cities as well. Well, it seems more necessary than ever, Althea, because we just had a horrific year from a mental health and a physical health standpoint. Uh, how is uh, Sims responding to that? So beyond those, they're also working and partnering with local governments and local nonprofits to begin further outreach. And Alejandro talked about how other people can get involved, like people in the healthcare communities in different cities can also jump in and help. Well, I would say that, you know, first of all, go to the Sims uh, website, which is simsfoundation.org, or you can text 44321 and make donations that way or provide, you know, whatever services you care. If there's providers out there who would love to help, uh, you know, therapists and such, uh, we'd love to have you. That's a really interesting idea, Althea. There are groups, uh, legal groups, in many cities across the U.S. where lawyers donate X amount of time pro bono to help musicians and artists uh, who need some legal assistance, you know, gallery contract or a recording deal. And so Alejandro is saying, if you're a therapist who can give us some time, contact us. Exactly. And one of the things that's cool is they do low to no cost for the, the clients that, that apply for Sims Foundation funding. And yeah, it's great. They do sliding scale for musicians as well. And yeah, it is because there's people who are volunteering their time. Like you said, the lawyers that do that, it's the same thing with Sims Foundation too. You know, this is these problems that he's talking about in the musicians community, obviously they're you know, society-wide. It's not just musicians that go through this or people in the music community. But uh, there is a personal toll. There's no doubt about it. It's a tough life. You know, people talk about the idea of touring in a van. I was like, you know, it's, that's insane after a while. It's just like, you know, it's no way to live, right? Uh, or at least live a relatively healthy life because it's just prone to, you know, you're just exposed to so many more things. You know, Alejandro himself, hepatitis C, he's, he's had issues with health. Um, does he feel that musicians are more, more vulnerable health-wise when, when, when some of these issues arise? Absolutely. He discussed that with me. He was talking about how everything from the creative process to like the feedback you get to touring can impact mental health, not being able to see your family forever. He, he gets into more detail here. Well, the challenges that musicians face are numerous as far as mental health is concerned. When you think about, you know, the exposing of one's soul to the world and uh, the insecurities that might come with that, the... Uh, the constantly being told that something is not good enough, you know, whether it be 
an individual song or a guitar playing or whatever it is, it's a quite a challenge to become a musician, you know? And then once you become a musician and you're traveling, you start to make records. The miles and the hours are exhausting. Uh, they're very, the wear and tear on a musician's mental health is pretty extreme. Uh, of course, uh, you're separated from family, you're separated from your wife, you're separated from your loved ones, your children. And there's a lot that's involved in that. There's a sense of guilt sometimes. There's a sense of, you know, joy in being a musician and going out and making people feel good. But at the same time, you know, kind of always kind of trickling in the back of your head, there's a thought that there's people that you've left behind, you know. The music industry is a very tough industry. It's very competitive. So there's always the constant you know, challenge that you might not make it, you know. And I think that, like, for me, I know that, you know, when I, in 2003, I was stricken ill with hepatitis C, and suddenly all of that was taken away from me. Something I'd done every day since I was 24 was suddenly gone. And I was challenged by the thoughts of, you know, who am I and what is it I really do and who I do I need to be now? And I may never be able to do this again. And it was something I loved dearly. So, you know, for me personally, I've had some tests along the way. You know, in the early days, there wasn't a Sims Foundation. But because of what happened here in Austin, I think it was a very special community and the time was perfect for it to happen. So thank God for Sims. That's all I can say. Wow. Althea um, Alejandro really brings home how challenging the life of a musician is. And then <laughs> the only thing that could possibly be worse is to be denied making your livelihood or even the joy of playing uh, with the people you regularly play with for a year and a half with this damn pandemic. Yeah, I mean, the music industry, as we all know, is one of the last to come back to business, right? I mean, they're just starting out concerts again. Most bands have not even performed except for those like live streams. And Alejandro was talking about how he hadn't performed live since February of 2020. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, as you guys know, he had just released La Cruzada, which is the Spanish version of his 2018 album, The Crossing. Mm -hmm. um, and he was like getting ready to go on tour. So he did that show in February. He's like getting ready to go on tour. He even remembers the date. He was like on March 12th, bam, you know. And he said he hasn't worked since. And, you know, in addition to the fact that all of these musicians have lost like their livelihood for this amount of time, we also lost musicians themselves uh, to this coronavirus, right? So one of the things he is talk talked to me about is that we're not out of the woods yet, but his next show is like a poignant one that sort of pulls together why Sims Foundation expanding its reach right now is so crucial. You know, I talked about the, the people that we've lost along the way here in this last 18 months. And for me, the, the death of John Prine was really heartbreaking. And uh, he was a friend. And we were about to do this show in New York, the Ibero Awards. Are you familiar with that? Yes. Uh, I, yeah. And we were both going to receive an award and play together. And then he passed, you know. And we even had plans to get together in Nashville and hang out. Um, 
so uh, you know it's been really really tough you know it's just been really hard and so my first gig though is october 6th at the grand old opry where they're holding a memorial for john and his wife fiona has asked me to come and sing a song so that's my first show and then i do some shows in the midwest for about nearly a week and then i come home and then go out to the east coast in november so hopefully if everything goes as planned it'll work uh it looks like there's still, you know, trouble on the horizon if we don't really kind of get vaccinated and stuff. So we'll see what happens. A fascinating chat with Alejandro Escovedo, Althea, uh, and a worthy cause, the Sims Foundation. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk more about mental health problems in the music industry and a story that's been way on top of the news. Welcome back to the Sound Opinions Bonus Podcast. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. But this is all about Althea Legaspi telling us about the news. Um, you know, one of the things, Althea, that was fascinating about, uh, about the entire career of Alejandro Escovedo is how open he has been about his battles with, uh, with the substances that are always thrown at musicians, with his own health, with that, that lifestyle. Uh, and, and uh, you know, fearless in... Uh, what could have been uh, stigmatizing in many ways, right? Uh, he has never worried about that. And we're seeing more and more musicians coming out and talking about things that they never did uh, in the world of mental health that were always very stigmatized. I mean, just like it's been in the last few years, the destigmatization has been something that I think a lot of people have been focusing on. And that's a, a big thing that Sims Foundation is also seeking to to do. You know, Ariana Grande, her, she's talked about her anxiety and PTSD. Remember from the Manchester concert bombing in 2017? Yeah. yeah. And just recently she partnered with this app uh, called Better Health. Help. They provided $2 million worth of free therapy to anyone who signed up. It's it's done already because it was like, that's how many people needed it, right? Yeah. But it was a month long of, of help. Billie Eilish has done uh, PSAs about it. She talks very openly about her depression. Um, I'm sure you guys have also seen Demi Lovato. She just did her documentary about almost dying. Yeah. You know? Yeah. She's been very, very open about uh, what's been happening and also advocates for mental health as well. I mean, these are things that, I mean, we've been around for a while, right? These were things that people didn't really openly discuss that I feel like is important now that people are starting to talk about it because we've also lost a lot of musicians to suicide, right, over the years. Well, or, or, or not only didn't talk about it or, or actually kind of romanticized it. You know, you think we're. I'm glad Keith Richards is alive and well, but uh, to celebrate the behavior that would have killed many lesser human beings <laughs> for decades, you know, yeah. is, uh, is short-sighted. I think. Exactly. Exactly. But this brings us to the Britney Spears story. I'm glad, Althea, at Rolling Stone, you have been covering this. <laughs> Craig and I used to have a line, you know, we, we uh, listen to Britney Spears so you don't have to, when we were reviewing her in her heyday. But this story of her fighting this conservatorship is, is horrifying. Oh, my God. It is, I mean, just bananas, right? So as you guys know, she's been under a court-ordered conservatorship since 2008, right? Which put 
a lawyer, court-appointed lawyer that she obviously had no say-so in, and her father, Jamie Spears, it, as the sole conservator at that time. And that they basically control her finances and her career. Since last year, through that attorney, she requested that her father be removed. The judge just, again, recently denied that, but they did do a co-conservator for her, um, a financial institution called Bessemer Trust. Um, and then earlier this year, this is kind of why I think people are paying more attention to it, right? They, there's been bubblings about this conservatorship, obviously, after 13 years. Well, and there's been a hashtag free Exactly. Movement, and right? so earlier this year, Hulu and the New York Times Presents did a documentary called Framing Britney Spears. Um, now, the pop star herself has expressed embarrassment about it, right, because she, ha- she hadn't been, like, speaking really much about this. But it brought more attention to questioning of the conservatorship and Free Britney, the Free Britney movement, hashtag Free Britney movement that you brought up earlier, which is where fans have been questioning this conservatorship and the the motives behind it, right? Because there's a lot of money involved in this. She's paying for all of it. Yeah, millions and millions. And that was, uh, so then that kind of leads us to what started happening last month. She addressed the court to seek an end to her conservatorship. And this is the first time the world has actually heard, you know, her alleged side of the story um, over all these years. Well, and it was horrifying. She's not allowed, uh, you know, they dictate who she can date, uh, if she can uh, be in a relationship or remarry. Birth control. Yep. That she cannot have a baby if she wants to, uh, forcing her to be on an IUD. Um you know, I think back of something, it's interesting, Courtney Love has been rallying to the defense of Britney Spears. These are all, I, I get this from Rolling Stone News, uh, which which you're contributing to all the time, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, but, you know, Courtney and, and Kurt were obsessed with Frances Farmer, the actress in, in, uh, in Seattle, uh, who was institutionalized against her will, mm. you know, for daring to be a strong-willed woman, you know, and they turned her into sort of proto-feminist icon, and that's sort of what's happening with Britney Spears. This woman is going to be 40 years old in December, Althea, and, and uh, she can't make any move uh, on her own. I mean, she likened, she's, she obviously called this abusive as everything you just outlaid shows, right? And the fact that she wasn't told by her lawyer, uh, she alleges that she wasn't informed that she could even petition the court to get out of this conservatorship and that he advised her allegedly to not talk publicly about any of this. And she also likened, you know, these terrible work conditions, right? She, if you read the testimony... She was working seven days a week, seven nights a week, um, and she likened it to sex trafficking in her testimony. I mean, this is... Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's far off. I wrote a piece uh, for Salon back in the day at the height of her fame, and I had read her autobiography, co-written with her mother. And the mother bragged about getting this kid dance lessons at age two. And her entire life, she was groomed by this pop machine and sexualized, right? And, you know, there's debate. I think one thing that the free Britney superfans are missing, you know, you know, she was in control of her career and her sexuality. Well, was she really? Not really. When she was dressing like the Catholic schoolgirl and singing, you know, I want to be a slave for you and toxic. And, you know, I, I, her entire life she's been taken advantage of by the male uh, hegemony and, and the machine, don't you think? 
Craig? Oh, absolutely. I was at a panel at, uh, at, at, again, South by Southwest, where an executive on her record company was bragging about how they were portraying her as this kind of, you know, uh, you know, child bait, you know, middle-aged men would do things to her picture, you know, that kind of thing that it was like, we're going to sell records because of w- the way we're having her look well, and, let me, and her uh, image. And I couldn't believe somebody no, would say that in public, but they were bragging uh, somebody, about it. Somebody, Greg, from Jive Records, the yeah. uh, label that also sold 100 million records by R. Kelly, yeah. who now faces 195 years in jail. Al- but Althea, you know, enough from these boys here. What what do you make of that? You know, it's one of the things I was wondering I wanted to talk to you guys about. I, I had reviewed her as we all have um over the course of this time and i i you know 2011 i had said that she seemed to just have just be sort of going through the motions right Um, zombie like on stage yeah, yeah it was very just devoid of joy and then in 2016 um, I, I felt it was also lackluster. And in light of everything she's saying, it's to me no surprise that when you're forced to be a certain way by whatever uh, people have been surrounding her, right? She hasn't made any decisions on her own. I often wonder if this wasn't happening, what, what would she have been doing? What kind of songs would she possibly have been making? Could she actually sing during a concert? Did she even have control over that, right? You know how they voice, they put her voice in, right? Yeah. I, I mean, we, I don't think we've really gotten to see what she could do if she didn't have this kind of control. Um, well, over you know, her. you have artists like Billie Holiday uh, drew the pain from the depths of their soul and made brilliant art, you know, uh, men who abused her and, and addictions. What could this woman, uh, what kind of art could she create if she had the freedom to actually be an artist and not a, a prepackaged pop uh, product? Exactly. And I'm just, you know, again, it's just, it, we may never know because she's implied that this is it for her, that, um, you know, and again, who can blame her that she's retired from the stage as of right now. Um, but I'd really like to see, honestly, without all these people, you know, influencing how she does her every move, honestly, what she could give us and what she can bring for herself, actually. Althea, two questions to wrap up. What happens next, briefly, in this case for Brittany? So in the wake of the testimony, her court-appointed lawyer, Sam Ingham, has filed the paperwork to resign. And then her longtime manager, Larry Rudolph, has also stepped down. What I think may possibly happen, she does have the ability to file, to petition the court to terminate her conservatorship. Whether they'll actually do that is anyone's guess. It seems like she needs to get away from that father. And yeah, and that obviously, if she can get out of that, that would be great. I mean, it doesn't sound like, at least from everything she alleges, that the majority of people around her are doing anything actually to advocate well for her right now. Yeah, historically, uh, Althea, there's any, is there any sort of any precedent you see for this sort of control over a major pop star? I the only one that comes to mind for me right off the top of my head is Eugene Landy's relationship with Brian Wilson oh, yeah. uh, back in the '80s and early '90s. You know, where he basically took control over Brian's life, his mental health, and his recording career. Yeah, I, that's the only thing that springs to mind to me. Honestly, for this long of a period of time, it seems 
unconscionable. I, and right now, a lot of people are discussing in the legal world just redefining what conservatorships should do, right? Because if they do well, what they're supposed to do, right, is to make the person healthier, they can say, well, this conservatorship is helping them, so let's keep it going on, right, as this person improves. If this person is not doing well, then they should stay in the conservatorship because they're not doing well. So it's almost like putting you in a position where if you're under that, it's going to be very difficult to get out. You're never you do, getting out. It's, it's a catch-22. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it'll. I feel like this is going to actually set a precedent when you're asking about precedents of how this is going to, how conservatorships in general, not just with musicians, right, but how conservatorships in general are going to be operated in the future. And that's why it's, it's out of the realm of pop music at this point, and you have serious uh, magazines like The New Yorker and The New York Times uh, uh, really looking at this case. Yes. It's not because all those reporters love Toxic. <laughs> I love Toxic. <laughs> <sighs> all right. Well, some, well, you know, we'll, we'll have a disagreement about that another time, Althea. But yeah. thank you for, again, enlightening us on music news. It's, it's, uh, you're going to be a recurring uh, uh, feature on our guest podcast. Thanks for having me.